Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and thanks for joining us for Back to the Bible Canada. In today's program in 1 Corinthians, we'll look at what it means to have a life that is truly rich. So let's listen to Dr. Newfeld's message called Assessing True Riches, taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 to 13. Some time ago, a Christian wrote down one of his prayers, and it went like this. Dear Lord, I've been rereading the record of the rich young ruler and his obviously wrong choice. But Lord, it has me thinking. No matter how much wealth he had, he could not drive his own car, have surgery if he needed it, turn on an electric light or set the temperature of his house, buy penicillin, download any music he wanted, access information from the internet, watch TV, wash dishes by pressing a button on a machine, email or text a friend, fly in an airplane, sleep on an individually pocketed coil mattress with gel memory foam, or carry his smartphone in his pocket. If he was rich, dear Lord, then what am I? You know, as the Apostle Paul nears the end of this first section of 1 Corinthians, in which he has been helping a struggling church and divided church come to terms with the reasons for their quarrels, he wants to talk to them about their wealth, or in reality, their great poverty. We'll read Paul's words in a moment, but for now, I'll give you a sneak preview. He mirrors their opinions of themselves. They they already believe they have everything they need. They have become self-sufficient. And the problem with self-sufficient people is they can't see their inherent spiritual poverty. The Corinthian Christians had become like the Christians in Laodicea, whom Jesus addressed in Revelation 3.17. But you do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. You have not understood what constitutes true riches and true poverty. You know, I've entitled this message, Assessing True Riches. I want us today to come to terms with what makes a person truly rich. I'm reminded of Liberace, a flamboyant and often outrageous pianist who, when he was dying, agreed to an interview in his ostentatious mansion. He said he would gladly give up all he had for health. And that would mean that Liberace thought a poor, healthy man was far richer than he was. And of course, he was right. It's fascinating to think that money is not the indicator of wealth that many of us think it is. Some of us, when we think wealth, think only of money. Some of us include freedom to do whatever we please or a lack of accountability or good health or internal satisfaction as measuring rods for wealth. But let's read our text, 1 Corinthians 4, 8 to 13. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become the spectacle of the world to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still, like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. You know, it's hard not to read this text without hearing the evident sarcasm in Paul. You're so rich and we're so poor. But in truth, Paul has exposed how the Corinthians really felt. They regarded themselves just like the Laodicean Christians did, wealthy, but they did not know that they were truly poverty-stricken. Can that happen to us? Can we be a spiritual pauper and never know it? 
Well, yeah, let me suggest four effective strategies to identifying true wealth. Number one, acknowledge your dependency on Christ. When Paul begins this paragraph by saying, already you have all you want, he means you should acknowledge that you really don't have all you want. I hope you read this in the way that it was intended. Paul is being sarcastic. Hear him saying, I wish I could reign with you and be as important as you are. And then he adds, oh, I really wish you were reigning and were important. The Corinthians, in fact, really did believe they were kings. And by that, what's likely is that they simply laid claim to every promise in the Bible that referred to them. They were king's kids. You know, for instance, think of Romans 8.1. There's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You don't want to know something? That's true for the Corinthians, and that's true for us. If you're in Christ, no matter who you are and what you've done, you are not now, nor will you be in glory, condemned. There are other promises. I love 1 Peter 2.9. But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession. We are kings and priests. Listen to Ephesians 1.5. He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. I'm adopted into his family. I have a place of belonging. And this choice for me was made from before the foundation of the world. You know, there are so many promises and believers should know them. We are indeed kings. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul is not denying this. He knows this. In fact, he would have taught the Corinthians himself. But you know what happens if we do not take God's truths in context? Theologians sometimes call this Christian triumphalism. This is the belief that the victories that we will experience only in the age to come are actually available to us now. Let me give you some illustrations. Every once in a while, I'm speaking about sin in believers, and someone will come and say, you know, I'm not a sinner, I'm a saint. Well, yep, you're a saint positionally. That's what you are. And it is true that your old nature has died with Christ, but it is not true that you do not sin today. I wonder how many of us have noticed that in 1 Timothy 1.16, near the end of his life, Paul himself will call himself, present tense, the worst of sinners. You know, some time ago, there was a real controversy among some Christians who argued that Christians shouldn't confess their sins. After all, they reasoned, haven't all our sins been forgiven, past, present, and future? Why should I then confess what has been forgiven? But listen, Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts or our sins. Let me offer you a piece of biblical advice. Acknowledge your sins before God. It will humble you. Ignore your sins, and it will build in you a fierce sense of spiritual pride and arrogance. Yes, count on all God's promises. They are yours in Christ. But do not become enamored with yourself. The promises came by grace. The sin came from your own works. You can't sing amazing grace until you understand that grace has come to a wretch like you. Acknowledge that you are dependent upon Christ for all things. That's great wealth. Now then, here's the second strategy to becoming genuinely wealthy. Acknowledge your call to cross-bearing. In verse 9, Paul says, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. Paul's using an illustration here. When he calls himself and other apostles as spectacles to the world, the Greek word is the word theatron, from which we get our English word theater. The ancient world had amphitheaters. They were large theaters in which people watched others compete in the games and also prisoners fighting beasts. Later in 1 Corinthians 15, 32, Paul admits that he himself was forced to fight wild beasts in just such a theater while he was in Ephesus. 
What would happen was that when the main events were ended, then the poorest and the weakest prisoners were brought in to fight the wild animals, often to be torn apart for the sheer pleasure of the crowd that was watching. The crowd would be drunk and loud and rowdy and just such a spectacle where they abused and threw things at and laughed as these poor miserable wretches were torn to their death was just what the crowd loved. That, says Paul, is a picture of what it means to be a servant of Jesus Christ. While the Corinthians were priding themselves of being kings, Paul was a spectacle, put on last in the show just so the crowd could have one more rude piece of entertainment. Now, how literally are we to take such an image? Well, according to Acts 19, when Paul was ministering in Ephesus, a riot ensued. Two of Paul's traveling companions were brought into the theater, and Paul was restrained by his own people from entering into the theater himself. And that's what it says in Acts 19.31. They urged him not to venture into the theater and try to stand with his own people. So I think Paul means his language quite literally. And if the Corinthians took a moment to reflect on it, they'd have to admit that the apostles whom Christ had chosen were quite the opposite of the ruling monarchs they imagined themselves to be. Now, there is no place in the Christian church for triumphalism. In this life, we are called upon to take up Christ's cross and know the honor of identifying with him in his sufferings. Now to verse 10 and 11. We are fools for Christ's sake, he says. And then oozing with sarcasm, listen to Paul say, but you are wise in Christ. We're weak, you're strong, you're held in honor. And I suppose they were because they were trying so hard to look wise in the eyes of their culture. And Paul adds, but we're in disrepute. I hope you can feel the contrast between how Paul saw himself and how the Corinthian believers saw themselves. And by the way, this is one of the reasons I'm so opposed to the health and wealth gospel that some people preach. Come to Jesus and all your bills will be paid and you'll be wealthy and driving a brand new luxury car. Contrast that to Christ. In Luke 14, 27, he says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And when we come back, let's see how cross-bearing and suffering can really be seen as wealth. According to the Apostle Paul, this tendency for believers to see themselves as rich when in fact they are spiritually poor is a dangerous one. We must be constantly aware of our propensity to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. And indeed, Jesus' words call us to deny ourselves and be willing to suffer for his sake. After the break, Dr. Neufeld will go deeper into what God demands of our lives and how we can apply this truth today. John 1.12 reads, But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. Well, this verse expresses the heart and mission of Back to the Bible Canada. We teach the Bible, but for a purpose, that those who hear might receive and believe in the Lord Jesus. That's the intention of every program, every word. Whether on radio, podcast, mobile application, Truth and Life magazine, Truth and Life Today, or our young adult ministry in doubt or the many who tune in to listen to Laugh Again. Every program and resource serves to deliver God's Word so that those who hear would be saved. Thank you for embracing and supporting this mission. Your gifts make all that is done through Back to the Bible Canada possible. And please consider supporting the ongoing ministries of Back to the Bible Canada as we strive to reach our December year-end goal of $465,000. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.ca. 
Some time ago, I read the book Safely Home, a fictionalized account of the story of martyrdom Chinese believers. I was appalled by their suffering, and yet I had a sense that I was witnessing a great crowd of people carrying on their assignment before Christ. Did you know that you were called to suffer? Oh, yes, you are. Philippians 1.29 says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. I've spent time with underground pastors in countries where believers are thrown into prison for their faith, and I have marveled at how rich many of them seemed. I remember a number of years ago taking a group of graduating pastoral students on a retreat in Romania, and I talked about how suffering is always a part of the ministry. A number of us in pastoral ministry illustrated it from our own lives, and and one young man said, I hope my fiancé doesn't hear about this. Well, we all laughed, but really not too loudly. Suffering is the lot of all believers. For you, it might mean being mocked in a secular university class. It might mean being fired from your job. It might mean that your family turns from you. It might mean that you give sacrificially so you can't afford something you really wanted. But you are called to suffer, to be a fool for Christ. Let me ask you this. Why do you think you would be popular as a believer? You will be treated like Christ. He told you that. In this way, through suffering, Christ will help us to become humble, to smash the pride in all of us. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12:7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. So we saw that if you want to begin to get a handle on true wealth, first you'll need to acknowledge your dependency on Christ and then grasp fully that you have been called to identify with Christ in your suffering. And then acknowledge the demands of discipleship. In verses 11 and 12, Paul writes, To the present hour we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And then note what he says next, And we labor, working with our own hands. You know, when Paul first arrived in Corinth, he had no other means of support, and so he worked as a tent maker to provide for his means. You know, every Jewish boy had to learn a trade, and every Jewish rabbi had one outside of his religious duties. So in that sense, Paul was not unlike most of his contemporaries. But Paul will often make much of the fact that even when he is being supported by others so that he can give himself fully to his ministry, he is not lazy. In 1 Thessalonians 2.9, he says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. He says something similar in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 8. We did not eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. For those who might have thought Paul's ministry was exotic, I mean, he got to travel and rewarding. After all, he started churches everywhere and people all over the ancient world knew him. And so he reached a certain level of fame. For those who thought it would be rich because of all these things, they should think again. What he experienced were hardships and very hard work, not a life of ease, no freedom 55, just hard work. I think that in order to be a disciple of Jesus, we must acknowledge that our life is not our own. Can I say that again? Your life is not your own. Paul said that he was a servant, a subordinate to Christ, and that meant hard work. You know, when Hudson Taylor first got to China in the year 1800, he was appalled how many missionaries weren't doing anything but writing fine-sounding letters and making a decent income at it. In contrast, Taylor set himself to reach out to people who had never heard. See, I know this. If we are to discover our assignment from God, with that assignment comes hard work. The Sunday school teacher who takes time every Saturday after a hard work week, 
and prepares a lesson so that he might disciple a group of 13-year-old young men and women. They don't have to do it, but when they do it because they have a hunger to disciple young adolescents, it's impressive to behold. I remember the people that I encountered as a local church pastor, people who gave out of joy and purpose. I remember a woman who told me once, Pastor, I'm not available every December. I'll be gone that month in Mexico. Any other time, I'll serve faithfully. And she was as good as her word. But I also remember when she died very suddenly of cancer. It was only then that I heard what she did in Mexico. You see, I thought she was just taking a vacation, and there would have been absolutely nothing, nothing wrong with that. Canadian winters are long, and on the west coast where I live with all the rain, they tend to be dark and dreary. But I found out that every December, she spent time with a local church ministering to the poor who were living in a garbage dump. She prepared food and she shared the gospel so that everyone would listen. You know, there's something about purpose and calling in the sense that I'm about something that God has called me to that is amazingly enriching. Work hard, says Paul, and it is work, but it beats the leisure of those who have no purpose. You know, I said there were four strategies that are not our strategies but God's to take away pride and to give us a genuine sense of where true wealth actually lies. The first is to acknowledge our sins and to be completely reliant on Christ. The second is to hear the call of suffering and cross-bearing. The third is to work hard. And the fourth, well, the fourth is that we acknowledge that we must be like Christ. If you really begin to serve Christ, the first thing you'll find is that you're being criticized. I tell young pastoral students about pastoral ministry. I say, you will hear all manner of false rumors about yourself, and you'll never have the opportunity to set the record straight. You know, on my retreat in Romania, one of the students said that he would use his pulpit to get back at those who heard him. (laughs) I asked him what Jesus would do. Well, in verses 12 and 13, Paul tells what Christ would do. When reviled, we bless, he said. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. That's what a number of people think about us. And Paul tells us that he has practiced three things that he has found in the mind of Christ. First of all, he knows he will be reviled. That means he knows that some people will hate him, and he is determined to return some kindness to them. Secondly, When he is persecuted, he simply goes to God and asks him to give him patience to go through it and to remain firm in his faith, not buckling in weakness. And that's all. And thirdly, when he's slandered, in other words, when there is gossip about his motives or people suspect that he's not sincere, all that kind of stuff, he will, he says, entreat. In other words, he will plead with them for understanding, but he won't gossip back. And he knows some people will see this as weakness. And they will see him as scum, and he knows it. Every child of God knows that a loving and gracious Heavenly Father brings these kinds of things into a believer's life. For God knows that you will never be able to defeat pride without them. God knows unchecked pride will tear your faith apart, and it will leave you far from God. Unchecked pride will make God your enemy. Unchecked pride will make you incapable of loving. Unchecked pride will bring quarrels to the church of Jesus Christ. Unchecked pride will lead us to a terrible fall. Unchecked pride makes us just like Eve, who left the most beautiful of all surroundings, the Garden of Eden, because she was seduced by the idea that she could be like God. Unchecked pride is toxic. It kills true faith. It makes 
us poverty-stricken. It makes us poor and deludes us to thinking that we have really become rich. And what have you got in the end? I think Mary, the mother of Jesus, put it quite well in Luke 1, 52. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Here's Paul's invitation. I would, he says in verse 8, that you truly would reign. Indeed, I wish we all did reign. So Christ has a way of helping us to understand what true riches is. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we have so quickly drunk from the wisdom of the world when we have imbibed in the idea that riches is about the definition that our society gives us. Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray in Jesus' name, may we see what true riches is. May we love what you provide for your children. May we revel in it and truly become rich. In Jesus' name, amen. John, thanks so much for your message today and the reminder of pride and how it can overwhelm us and overwhelm any Christian as long as we're not giving glory to God in every situation. So how do we deal with the good stuff that happens in life? Uh, Should we feel guilty when good things happen? Uh, Definitely not. I think that we should rejoice in the goodness of God in either case. But getting back to that pride issue, uh, Ben, I've often thought that the issue of pride is not that we think too much of ourselves or too little of ourselves. The issue is that we're stopped thinking about ourselves altogether. We're, we're God-centered in all things. So whether in, in, in riches or in poverty, I am thankful that God is caring for me. You know, in my riches, God is providing for me what I need and, and also provides a, an accountability for what I have. And in my poverty, God is leading me through a valley so that I might learn from him and trust him entirely. But to give thanks that our sovereign God is controlling these matters. I think that's the key. You know, it's interesting you say that because as a pastor, I remember feeling like everything rose and fell on me sometimes, like either I was good or I was bad or success was based on that. But it's really, it's really not that. It's God. Yeah, Ben, um, wow. All of us who have served in pastoral ministry and every pastor that's listening to our voices here will identify with this. We think that everything about the growth or the decline of our church is about us instead of being about God. Boy, we've got to learn that. I don't know how many times we have to repeat it to ourselves, but it is true. It's about God. You know, as we look around us today, it's so true that much of the source of evil in the world is this unchecked pride that ultimately leads us to destruction and poverty. How much more as Christians do we have the means to overcome our pride and live a life of true riches? Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Imagine walking the very streets that Jesus walked, or placing your foot into the Sea of Galilee. If experiencing the very places Jesus, Paul, David, and so many others lived and taught is something you've always wanted to do, then make plans to join Back to the Bible Canada for our 2021 Israel Experience. Consider this your personal invitation to join Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld. Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, and very special musical guests, along with the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team for a trip of a lifetime, April 11th to the 19th, 2021. Experience the sights, sounds, history, and culture of Israel, making the Bible come alive. 
And for those who'd like to extend their experience, we're also offering a Jordan extension. So to learn more or to register today, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca.